and and really that applies not just to American physicians but physicians around the world because Robin's pathology is translated into 13 languages. It's probably the most popular pathology book in in the whole world uh, and has been since, you know, Stanley Robbins first wrote it back in the the 1960s. So the the idea that I could contribute to a book like that, that has had such a dramatic impact on on generations of physicians, that's, that's very gratifying. Welcome to the People of Pathology podcast. I'm Dennis Strank. On this podcast, we explore pathology, laboratory medicine, and forensic science. Pathology is a very visual field, and for that reason, so are the textbooks. In addition to the photos, you'll also find many illustrations, and that's the work of the medical illustrator. My guest today is Jim Perkins. Jim is a medical illustrator and a professor of medical illustration. And today, we're going to talk about how he got into this field, how he started working on the Robbins textbooks, some of the other textbooks that he has illustrated, and then we'll talk about some illustration techniques and his thoughts on the future of the field. All right, here's Jim Perkins. You know, I was telling people at work that I was going to be speaking with you and, you know, telling telling them that, you know, you're a medical illustrator and some of the work that you've done, and everybody kind of had the same question, like, do you get into the illustration, like the art part first, or do you get into the science part? first and i kind of want to go through what kind of your pathway through that now i know you started your bachelor's degree was in biology and geology so it sounds like you got into the science part first when you were when you were in school in college like what what did you intend to do in uh you know with your degree if you if you go back you know very early in my life i guess i was one of those little kids that was always obsessed with dinosaurs i I knew all their names i had lots of books about them and so my plan, even before high school, my plan was to become a vertebrate paleontologist. So that meant studying biology, of course, because you're you're dealing with the biology of prehistoric organisms. And the, the geology, of course, factors in because those organisms are preserved as fossils, uh, you know, in the fossil record. And also, it, it's really important to understand geology to help uh, piece together the environment in which these uh, ancient animals lived. After high school, I, I went to Cornell and, and did a double major in biology and geology. And my goal at that time anyway, was to continue on for a PhD and, and have a career in academia. You mentioned the vertebrate paleontology and you wanted to study that as well as anatomy. Um, is that this was kind of a continuation of getting into uh, paleontology? Yes. Yeah. So, as I became more serious about studying vertebrate paleontology, you know, beyond just memorizing the names of all the dinosaurs and that sort of thing, I became really interested in the relationship between embryological development and evolution. Uh, some people rec- refer to it as evo-devo, uh, evolution and development. Um, I, I highly recommend a book by Neil Shubin called Your Inner Fish that talks all about you know, how our understanding of, of embryology and developmental biology really helps us understand biological evolution. I was particularly interested in the evolutionary transition from reptiles to mammals. So I, I actually kind of moved away from dinosaurs specifically to another group of reptiles that lived 50 million years before the dinosaurs. Uh, there was a group called the pelicosaurs, and they eventually gave rise to a group called the therapsids, which that was the lineage of reptiles that eventually led to mammals. And there's some really interesting 
studies on the, the evolution of the middle ear bones uh, in that transition from reptiles to mammals. How these okay. bones originally were, were jaw bones in reptiles, and eventually they became smaller and smaller and became you know, the incus and the malleus and the stapes in the, the middle ear cavity. So I was really interested in that. I, so I took a lot of courses as I continued through, um, you know, through my bachelor's degree. And then as I moved into you know, graduate study, took courses in embryology and developmental biology. I was also very interested in anatomy. Of course, you know, some, some of that interest is probably pretty obvious because you're, you're dealing with the anatomy of these extinct organisms. But also I realized that many vertebrate paleontologists support themselves either by teaching comparative vertebrate anatomy in a biology department or even teaching human gross anatomy in medical schools. So I, I was very fortunate in my PhD studies that I had the opportunity to take human gross anatomy at the uh, medical school. Did you start teaching at that time or, or did that come later on? The teaching came quite a bit later. Um, okay. We, we can talk about that at some point. It's kind of circuitous route. Okay. I, I see. Now, is this kind of the transition point? Like how, how far did you go in the, you know, anatomy and developmental biology? And, and when did the, when did you start looking at art? I, I've, I've always had a, an interest in, in art, but it was really more of a, of a hobby. Uh, again, if you go back to, to my time in high school, I, I had this, this dual passion. You know, I, I, I loved science. I, I loved biology. I loved earth science. And I really loved art. I, I took every art class that I could take in high school, sometimes more than once. Um, mm -hmm. I won some some scholastic art awards at the at the state level. But at that time, I had absolutely no interest in pursuing a career in art. And I, I think that was mostly because the art teachers that I had painted a, a really bad picture of what life was like for an artist. You know, they really perpetuated this idea of the struggling, starving artist. So... When I left high school, I, I had absolutely no interest in pursuing art as, as a career. I was I was entirely focused on on the sciences. So I, I spent a year at the University of Texas in Austin. I was actually working in their vertebrate paleontology lab and had a chance to go out and dig up some dinosaur bones. And just as a bit of a tangent, this was the first time that I had an opportunity to actually do some scientific illustration professionally. Uh, some of the professors saw the the doodles that I was doing in my lecture notes uh, in their co courses. And one professor asked if I could illustrate some, some fossil horse teeth for one of his publications. And then another professor asked if I could paint some fiberglass casts of the, the wing bones of Quetzalcoatlus northropi. I don't know if you're familiar with that animal, but that was the, the Texas pterosaur, um, okay. the, the largest animal that ever flew, at least as far as we know right now. Uh, and that was discovered in, in West Texas. So they had the, the original bones there at, at UT, and they asked me to paint some fiberglass casts of it to look like the originals. But I started to have some doubts about whether I wanted to continue pursuing the PhD. I ended up leaving the University of Texas and spent a year working at a science museum uh, in Richmond, Virginia. But during that time, I, I talked myself back into the idea that, no, I, you know, I really want to finish this PhD. So I went back to school, but this time at, at the University of Rochester here in, in Rochester, New York, and continued my, my PhD studies. This is actually where I took uh, human gross anatomy with the medical students. But 
two things happened at, at this time that that changed my outlook and kind of changed my my career path. Those those same old doubts began to to resurface. I knew that I, I loved what I was learning. I, I loved the the science subject matter. I also knew that I loved teaching, but I, I really didn't enjoy the the research side of, of academia. I, I found the the research to be kind of lonely and kind of tedious. And of course, you've got the, the grant writing and the whole publisher parish mentality. And you know, thank goodness there are people out there who enjoy that. But I, I realized after working towards the PhD for several years that that, that really wasn't for me. So so I ended up leaving the, the PhD program. And, you know, now I had this big question in front of me. It's like, okay, now what? Now what do I do? And it was actually my my wife who suggested that I somehow combine my interest in science with my interest in art, which I really hadn't pursued um, at all. Um, you know, I, I, I as a double major in the sciences, as an undergraduate, I didn't have any time to fit a studio art class uh, into my curriculum. So I hadn't really taken a, a real art class at all in college but it, it seemed like an interesting approach to somehow combine these two interests so I even considered going back to school to study architecture because I saw that as a way of combining sort of you know the art side and, and engineering so it was kind of like science mm -hmm. uh, but that that meant going back for a whole new bachelor's degree and then continuing on for a graduate degree and uh, this is when I I discovered the medical illustration program here at Rochester Institute of Technology. That's that's where I teach now. And I, I consider myself extremely lucky because I had been at the University of Rochester here in Rochester, New York, and there just happened to be a, a medical illustration program right in my backyard here in Rochester. And which is which is pretty remarkable coincidence considering there are only five graduate programs in medical illustration in all of North America. So it's very oh, lucky. Wow happened to be one right here. Yeah, yeah. exactly. At, at first, when I discovered medical illustration, I thought, once again, I was going to have to go back and get a, another whole bachelor's degree and then maybe continue on for the master's. But I was very happy to find out that with my strong science background, as long as I could take maybe a few night classes in art and build up a portfolio of artwork, that I could enter the master's program directly and, and complete that in two years and, and move on to a, a new career. You know, it's funny, every once in a while when I'm talking to somebody on this podcast, they'll talk about, you know, their their particular career. And I'll think, man, if, if I had heard about that in high school, that's something I would have liked to do. And actually in high school, I, you know, like you were talking about, I took a lot of art classes and eventually realized it really wasn't something I wanted to pursue and, and switch to biology as well. So I think if I, if I had found medical illustration at that time, I might have gone that way uh like you did it is kind of a well-kept secret I'm, I'm afraid yeah here at rit we have a, an undergraduate program for those rare kids who learn about medical illustration as a profession while they're still in high school but but that's fairly rare because a lot of art teachers don't know about it a lot of guidance counselors don't know about it so students don't necessarily find out about it you know when they're looking to enter an undergraduate program so the majority of medical illustrators are actually trained at the at the master's level, the graduate level. They're, they'll have a, a bachelor's degree in biology or a bachelor's degree in art, but they have to have some combination, maybe a major in one and a minor in the other, and, and show aptitude in, in both areas, and then they move on for their master's degree. I kind of want to get into what that what the sort of the medical illustration 
the program involves. But, you know, talking about this field, it seems like it, it's it's kind of narrow, like there wouldn't be a lot of opportunities in it. And once you do get in it, once you have that master's degree, it'd be hard to kind of break into the field. Uh, how, how, did, how did you go about doing that? Well, you're, you're right, Dennis. It, it's, a, it's a very small field, very specialized. The jobs are, are very widely scattered. Uh, so you absolutely have to be willing to relocate to a different part of the country because the, the chances that there's going to be a, a perfect job for your set of skills and your interests right in your backyard, that's, that's going to be rare. So you have to be willing to, um, to pick up and move around. Now, when I, when I entered the profession, this is in the early 90s, you know, there really was no, no internet, at least no, no World Wide Web as we know it now. Right. So it's very, very difficult to find job opportunities. I relied entirely on the Association of Medical Illustrators. They actually had a, a job hotline. And back then, of course, it wasn't a website. You literally called a phone number and somebody had recorded job announcements on an answering machine. And, and that's really how I did my job search. And I've, I've learned since then that that was probably the wrong way to do it, that there were probably more opportunities out there. And, and even at that time, there were more opportunities out there that were unpublished, you know, that are never published as formal job announcements. So what I really should have been doing at that time was was more networking, you know, expanding my network um, of people in the profession to to learn about more opportunities. But uh, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. Now, now I teach my students that I, I teach them the value of of networking, getting involved in the Association of Medical Illustrators to uh, to broaden their network and, and learn about about opportunities. But I, I was fortunate. One of the the jobs that I applied for was with a company called Design Point Communications in Atlanta, and ended up getting a job there as a as a medical illustrator. That company worked with a lot of the big medical publishers at the time, W.B. Saunders, Mosby, Academic Press, Churchill Livingstone. Uh, all of these companies are now part of the Elsevier umbrella. They've all been absorbed by Elsevier. But at oh, that time, sure. Sure. Yeah. Okay. They, they were all uh, independent publishers. So, so I was working at this company in Atlanta called Design Point and um, working with these different publishers. And, and I worked there for a few years and then... That, that, that's when I really learned the power of networking as I met some other people working in the Atlanta area and was able to move from my first job to a second job with a company called Nucleus Medical Media. And, and that was a, a really interesting job because I was working mostly on medical legal exhibits, large exhibits that are used in the courtroom by attorneys for uh, personal injury cases, medical malpractice cases, basically illustrating people's injuries, surgical procedures, that sort of thing, and anything that's any kind of medical subject matter that, that's rele relevant to the, the case. Okay. That, that sounds super interesting. It, it was. It, I, I really enjoyed, I enjoyed both jobs. I, I really enjoyed doing the textbook illustration with Design Point and really enjoyed the medical legal exhibits. It was kind of like a detective story. You know, every day you'd go into work and you'd, you'd get a new case and you'd have to read through a great big stack of medical records to find out, you know, what happened, what is it that the attorney wants to show, you know, what are the important facts of the case that need to be illustrated. And then oftentimes you're working entirely just from written records, trying to piece together a, a surgical procedure. Uh, of course, you know, you can do outside research to, to help you understand the, the procedure, but 
oftentimes you're working entirely just from a bunch of written records trying to recreate something visually. Was it difficult to kind of get used to the, like the legal jargon and all of that? Fortunately, we didn't have to deal too much with the the legal jargon. Okay. You know, we, we learned a little bit about the progression of a typical legal case, you know, the, the filing and the, the settlement negotiations and, you know, actually going to trial. We learned a little bit about the rules of evidence and how these exhibits actually had to be admitted into evidence. So there had to be a medical expert who was willing to testify that the exhibit was a, a quote unquote, a, a fair and accurate depiction of the facts of the case. So I learned a little bit about the, the legal side of things, but, um, mm-hmm. but mostly it was about just, you know, illustrating a set of injuries or, you know, surgical procedure that someone underwent. Okay. I see. All right. Well, let, let's keep going then. So what, what happened after that? I, I worked at, at Nucleus for about four years uh, working on these medical exhibits. Mm-hmm. And then um, I had the opportunity to, to get into teaching. And one of my professors at, at RIT in, in the, the master's program that I had gone through uh, was, was forced to retire because of some health issues. So there was a job opening at RIT and I, I applied for that position. And I think probably because I had a, a range of different experiences in, in the working world, you know, I, I had worked in in traditional textbook publishing, I had worked in this medical legal field, so I, I had a you know variety of different experiences. I think that's one of the things that helped me land the job. So, uh, so I came back here to RIT to to join the faculty, and and I've been here since 1998. Can we talk about the medical illustrator? You te- you teach the the master's program. Yes. All right. Can we talk about kind of what sort of the format of the program and and some of that, like I'm trying to get an idea of what what the students learn. So, without without getting into into too much detail, the the program combines training in the biomedical sciences. So, uh, everyone coming into the program already has to have a pretty strong background in the biomedical sciences. I mean, they don't necessarily have to be a biology major, but uh, even if they're an art major, they still have to take a whole bunch of advanced biology courses just to get into the program. But then when they're in the program, they take things like human immunology, medical pathophysiology, histology and histopathology, and of course, human gross anatomy. So there's there's the science side of, of the program, just to make sure that the students really have a, have a strong background in the biomedical sciences. Then, of course, there's the, the art side of it. Um, and these days, it's almost all computer illustration. It's almost all digital illustration. So they, they learn traditional, you know, two-dimensional two digital illustration programs like Adobe Photoshop, Adobe Illustrator, things like that. Um, but they also learn three-dimensional computer graphics, three-dimensional computer modeling, 3D computer animation. And, and we're starting to branch out into some newer areas of things like you know, virtual reality, augmented reality, um, educational game design, things like that. And and then finally, the, the other thing they learn is is really just the the principles of visual communication, um, how to use visuals to effectively teach complex science subject matter. This this might be a stretch, but is 
part of the sort of the principles of visual communication, it seems like that sort of links a little bit to the kind of the legal aspect that we were talking about earlier, because you're trying to, you're trying to prove a point or, or make a point, I get, does, I guess, does that, does that make any sense? Yeah, I, I think I see where you're going with that. When I was working in the medical legal exhibit field, it was all about, you know, number one, just figuring out what happened, you know, reading through these medical records and Occasionally, there might be an X-ray or a CT or something, but just just the the detective story part of figuring out what happened. But then, more importantly, once once you know what actually happened in the case, trying to figure out the best way to communicate that to your audience, and that's something that medical illustrators always have to keep in mind: is who am I trying to teach? Not not just not just what am I trying to teach? You know, not not just what is the the science or or the anatomy or or the surgical procedure that I'm trying to to illustrate? But um, who who exactly is my audience uh, that I'm creating these these visuals for? So in the in the case of the medical legal field, you're creating them a little bit for the attorney and a little bit for the medical expert and a little bit for the judge, but mostly you're creating the exhibits for the jury. And and you have to think about their educational level, their prior knowledge of anatomy, which usually isn't much. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't expect most people to know a whole lot about anatomy. So if you're, if you're illustrating some part of the body, you know, you're, you're illustrating some surgical procedure, say, you know, a, a, on, on the lumbar vertebrae, you know, one of the vertebrae in, in the lower part of the back, you can't just zoom right in on that lumbar vertebra and show the operation without giving the jury some idea where that actually exists in the body so you have to start out with a with a big picture of of the entire human body you know viewed from the back with the, the vertebral column kind of transparently inside the body and and you know then a little box saying okay th- this is where we're focusing in in all of the other illustrations on this just to kind of orient them to where that's taking place so so that that's a big part of of this whole idea of visual communication is just knowing who your audience is knowing what do they already know and, and what do they need to know? As far as like the, the students then, like how do you, because it seems like you've got qu- quite a passion for this field and you've been pretty successful in it. How do you kind of convey that excitement or passion to the students? And and do you have any stories of, of someone like, I like to call it like the light bulb moment when someone actually kind of gets it. You, you know what I mean? Sure. Sure. Remind me if I forget to address the second part of your question, but but getting okay. back to the first part of your question about, you know, how do you convey passion for this sort of thing? And it, it's pretty easy to, to convey my passion for the field just, you know, because I am passionate about it. And, and so I, I think that comes through loud and clear in, in my teaching. But th- there are four things that I that I really love about being a medical illustrator. And, and hopefully this comes through to to my students in my teaching. The, the first thing I love about being a medical illustrator is being a teacher. As a medical illustrator, you are teaching with pictures. Whether you're trying to teach a jury or whether you're trying to teach medical students by, by illustrating a medical textbook, uh, regardless of, of who your audience is and, and what your intent is, you know, what, what you're creating, you're, you're teaching with pictures. So as I teach my students, I, I feel like I'm teaching teachers. I, I'm teaching them to know how to teach through mm-hmm. pictures. Okay. Uh, one of the other things I love about being a medical illustrator is lifelong learning. 
every time you sit down to do a new illustration of something, you have to learn about it. Because I think it's pretty obvious you can't teach something if you don't understand it yourself. So you have to really learn the the science of, of whatever it is you're trying to communicate uh, before you can actually begin to, to create an illustration of it. Frank Netter, the, the famous medical illustrator, he had an interesting quote. I don't remember the exact quote, but basically he was talking about how most physicians have to have a specialty, whether it's orthopedics or neurology or whatever. But Netter said that he had to be an expert in every field because he had to illustrate every field of medicine. Right. That makes sense. Some of the other things that I really enjoy about being a medical illustrator, there's there's the problem-solving aspect of it. You know, once you understand something and you know who your audience is, trying to figure out how to communicate that complex science to that audience. And probably the the, the final thing that I really enjoy about this field is that I, I feel like I'm really making a difference and I'm leaving a legacy. There was a, an obituary published for Dr. Stanley Robbins, um, you know, author of, of Robbins Pathology. Yeah. And um, the there was a quote that I, that I really enjoy in, in this obituary. Uh, and it said, it's fair to say that every American physician trained in the last four decades of the 20th century can mark their education by which edition of Robbins they read. And, and really that applies not just to American physicians, but physicians around the world, because Robbins pathology is translated into 13 languages. It's probably the most popular pathology book in, in the whole world uh, and has been since, you know, Stanley Robbins first wrote it back in the, the 1960s. So the, the idea that I could contribute to a book like that, that has had such a dramatic impact on, on generations of physicians, that, that's, that's very gratifying. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I, I, I want to get into that. But first, uh, so I'm going to remind you about, about the oh, students yeah. then, um, as far as like, you know, kind of giving them that, you know, some of the passion that, that you have about the field. Yeah. I, I can think of a, a couple stories. One, one I think addresses your, your question more specifically. Um, I had a graduate student when I first started RIT. Student was a very talented artist. He didn't have quite as strong a background as or science background as some of the other students, but very talented artist. Um, but also just seemed to lack focus and and direction. And in his his final year in the program, uh, when when I joined the faculty, I decided to create a brand new course in medical legal illustration. You know, drawing upon the experience that I had right before coming to RIT, I thought, wouldn't it be interesting to, to create a whole course about how to create these, these illustrations that are used in the courtroom? So I created and taught this, this, this um, medical legal illustration course. And the student came up to me halfway through the course and said, I finally know what I want to do with my life. After wow. just kind of, you know, not being that, that focused or that serious a student, he, he knew what he wanted to do. And he ended up working for a um, small medical legal exhibit field, but he was only there a short time. And once he learned a little bit about the business, he struck out on his own and opened his own medical legal exhibit company, which, which has been very successful. Wow. One, one of my other favorite stories from teaching is I, I had a student, a different student who was very, very talented artist. I mean, you, you put a pencil in his hand or a paintbrush and he could draw or paint anything. And, 
And if he could see it in his mind or, or if he could see it, you know, sitting on a, on a desk in front of him, he, he could just paint anything. And it was, it was beautiful and, and, you know, had tremendous realism. But as I said, you know, we, we teach a lot of computer graphics and he found it very, very difficult to transition that skill to, to the computer. And, and I knew it was just a matter of time. You, you just have, it's like learning any new tool as an artist. You know, the first time you pick up a paintbrush and you try to paint in oils, it's it's just not going to be that successful because you have to learn how to handle the medium. And it's the same thing with the computer. It requires the same artistic talent, the same drawing skills. It's really just a different tool. And so after he continued to work with it and, we, you know, we kind of forced him, it's like, no, you got to keep working on this. You can't you can't just keep working in, in traditional media. Uh, you, you have to really learn computer stuff. And, and and he came to me one day and it was the same kind of thing. He had had this epiphany. It's like, I, I finally get it. I, I, I feel like I finally reached the point where I can see something in my head and then make it happen on the computer. That's really cool. That's got to that's gotta feel good for you to have that sort of influence on those students. Yeah, it, it definitely does. Very gratifying. Yeah, for sure. This is the People of Pathology podcast with our guest, Jim Perkins. We'll be right back. LabVine is an interactive online learning platform where laboratory professionals learn, develop, and discover by sharing knowledge and building on each other's experience. The platform provides global access to internationally accredited laboratory-specific courses and other resources developed by lab specialists for the laboratory industry. LabVine is free to sign up, and you can use the link in the show notes to get started. Now back to Jim Perkins on the People of Pathology podcast. All right. So you you mentioned Dr. Robbins already, and it, you've been the illustrator for the Robbins textbooks for over 27 years. Yep. So let's go back to the beginning of that. How did that relationship start? Okay. So I was working for this company, Design Point Communications. This is in the early 90s. Mm -hmm. And as I mentioned before, we were working for a bunch of the big publishers. But when I first started there, I was still working mostly in traditional media. And, and mostly it was black and white pen and ink work. And um, illustrated an edition of uh, Dorland's Illustrated Medical Dictionary, you know, the big red dictionary that a lot of people have. Oh, uh, yeah. Contributed to a number of surgical atlases, including Campbell's Orthopedics, which is a, a well-known surgical atlas. Uh, but all of this was, was work done in, in pen and ink. But when I was at RIT as a student, I had learned you know, some of the Adobe software, Adobe Photoshop, and in particular, Adobe Illustrator. And so I was starting to do more and more of my work in Adobe Illustrator. And then in about, I want to say it was about 1993, uh, W.B. Saunders, the publisher, they approached us with what was a pretty radical idea at the time. They wanted to create a, a brand new book entirely in full color, which, which that was fairly radical at the time. I mean, back then, many books were still published entirely just in black and white or they might be what we call a two-color job where there would be, you know, black ink plus like one color of ink. And so you could make illustrations using some combination of just black and, and this this one color. Mm -hmm. uh, so so books were either one color or two colors. So but the idea of creating an entire book in full color was was somewhat new, especially in the medical publishing business. And they wanted to create the whole thing digitally. So they wanted to create a whole book from beginning to end using software called Adobe Illustrator, all in, in full color. And the book that they wanted us to create was 
um, a book called Pathology for the Health Professions by Dr. Ivan Damanov uh, at Kansas University Medical Center. I, I don't know if you know Dr. Damanov or, or know of him. And so I started working on this, this book and really kind of learning Adobe Illustrator in depth as I was working on this book. Thankfully, we, we had a, a graphic designer, uh, Chris Robinson, who was working with me. And, and he had also taken a little bit of, of um, Adobe Illustrator in college. And so really, it was, it was the two of us, me and Chris, trying to figure out, okay, how do we illustrate an entire book from beginning to end in, in full color uh, on the computer? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think it was, it was, it was very successful. We, we managed to do it. And we completed the book. I ended up leaving Design Point in 1995 and immediately got back in touch with some of these publishers and said, okay, you know, I'm, I'm no longer with Design Point. I'm available to take on projects of my own. Saunders was getting ready to publish the next edition of Robin's basic pathology, the, the so-called baby Robins, the, the smaller version of the book. Yep. And they suggested my name to Dr. Vinay Kumar and suggested that I might be a good illustrator for this because they were, they were also looking to update the Robbins books. You know, they had been published, I think entirely in, in two color, you know, so just black plus this other one color of ink. So they were, they were looking to um, update the, the Robbins books uh, into full color. So they, they recommended my name to Dr. Kumar. So I illustrated the sixth edition of baby Robbins, uh, the basic pathology. And uh, that, seemed to work pretty well it was was very successful and then moved on to do the the big book robbins and cotran pathologic basis of disease and then, then went on to illustrate the the whole series there's the the small pocket companion to robbins and cotran pathologic basis of disease there's a a newer book robbins essential Path- pathology that just came out mm-hmm. the first time about a year ago so yeah so i i was illustrating the whole robbins collection for uh about 27 years now okay wow was it always digital as well from the beginning yeah yeah because um because i had created that other pathology book for dr damanov um saunders really wanted to create all of the the robin's work also entirely entirely digital can we kind of go through like the process of how you create these illustrations and the, the thing I want to get at here is what sort of ideas do the authors give you as far as what sort of illustration they need? And then how much input do you get as far as what it looks like? Does that, does that make any sense? Yeah. Yeah. Really, it, it varies a lot. Um, it varies a lot depending on which of the editors I'm working with or which of the contributing authors that I'm working with. You know, there, there are three primary editors Dr. Vinay Kumar, Dr. Abul Abbas from uh, UC San Francisco, and Dr. John Astor from Harvard. Mm-hmm. And, um, each of those three editors has their own kind of style and their own way of interacting with me. But also the the, the individual chapters are, are written by contributing authors. And so I'll have a somewhat different relationship with each of them. Some of the editors and authors are, are very specific. They, they give me a lot of direction. Uh, Dr. Abbas, in particular, he also writes immunology books, as well as being a big part of, of the Robbins books. 
And, and so he has a, a, an awful lot of experience you know, working with medical illustrators and uh, publishing books. Uh, so he, he's very good at giving me a, a lot of very specific direction, sometimes even sending fairly detailed sketches about what he's looking for. You know, oh. I, I always have the opportunity to make suggestions and, and make changes. But then with, with some of the other authors uh, and some of the other editors, sometimes they'll, they'll just send me the text for the chapter. And say, okay, we need an illustration that shows this particular concept. What what do you suggest? And on, honestly, that's the the part of medical illustration that I really enjoy the most is the opportunity to to do that research on my own and devise my own solution to, to illustrating some concept. Now I know that the text portions of Robbins there there's like an extensive editing process. Like they have. I don't know, three or four rounds of editing before it's before it ever goes to print. What is it like with the illustrations? Does that have, are there several versions before you come up with the final one? Yeah, typically some, some of them I'm able to send them a a draft and and sometimes I I nail it the first time, but um, I I think probably because they're, as you say, they're, they're editing the, the text right up till the 11th hour, right up until the publisher says no, no more. It's it's got to go to press. They they will continue to to tweak the the artwork, you know, right up until right up until it goes to press. Is there ever like do you, are there ever like disagreements? Like we go, okay, this is what the illustration should look like, you know, in your opinion, and they have a different opinion, and you have to kind of hash it out, like make a compromise, something like that. I think the only time that I've really had any kind of disagreement with the the editors was that as, as the the books evolved, there was I I don't want to call it pressure, but but there was a a desire to create more, for lack of a better word, more, more highly rendered illustrations. In other words, things that that had more of a sense of of photorealism, uh, things that that had more, more three dimension to them. Okay. And, and I, I think that was really motivated. It was, it was primarily a, a marketing thing. I, I think some of the competing books had started to, you know, incorporate more sort of th- three dimensional looking artwork. And I think maybe the, the students were, were interested in that, you know, they, they found the books more attractive with more of this sort of 3d appearance and, I, I felt like sometimes the 3D could just be gratuitous. Uh, and and I, I talked to my students about this. Like, don't use 3D modeling software just because you can, just because you know how. The, there should be a good reason for rendering something, you know, with that level of three-dimensional realism. And, and, and occasionally, I think that medical illustrators will render things in in 3D, and it actually takes away from their instructional value, their, their educational value. The process of creating the illustrations for the Robbins books, has that changed? I mean, aside from this sort of 3D aspect, are there other ways that it's changed over the years? There, there have been a few changes. Like So there's the, the idea of creating more of these 3D-looking pieces. That, that was part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, one change on on my end uh something that i i just kind of took the initiative to to start doing this myself was to create more realistic representations of 
many of the molecular structures that are illustrated in the book. And of course, you know, with with pathology, especially, you know, that that's probably Robin's big contribution to, you know, the world of pathology is is understanding the the cellular and molecular mechanisms that underlie pathology. So, I mean, his, his idea going back to the 50s and 60s was, you know, we're not just going to create a picture book of, you know, here's a bunch of pathology lesions and and uh, you know tumors and things, but really understanding the 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 basis of disease, you know, hence the name, the pathologic basis of disease. So, right. so there, there's lots of molecular pathways and things. And historically, many medical illustrators would illustrate these pathways using just a bunch of simple geometric shapes. You know, here's this little triangle that comes down and binds to this rectangle on the surface of the cell and causes some cascade of other little rectangles and shapes inside the cell. And there's been a move, not, not, not just on my part, but amongst medical illustrators in general, to try to create more accurate representations of those molecular structures. I, I have a colleague who referred to it as molecular anatomy, I'm trying to get to the point where there are certain molecules, things like ATP synthase, which has a very, very distinctive shape to it, that eventually people would get to the point where they could look at a certain molecule and, and recognize it as easily as they could look at a femur. And, and recognize the femur just from a simplified shape. In, in order to, to do that, I, I had to figure out, okay, where, where do you even get references for molecular structure? So uh, I learned about a lot of molecular modeling databases, uh, structural biology databases like the Protein Data Bank, uh, where you can retrieve you know, three-dimensional models of uh, protein structures, um, other databases, you know, PubChem, ChemID Plus from the National Library of Medicine, things like that, where you could retrieve models of, of molecular structures. One story that I, I find kind of amusing about the, the evolution of the artwork in the Robbins books, that this is, you know, it's not related to the molecular visualization thing, but when I first started working on Robbins' basic pathology in, in 1995, I knew that I was going to have to illustrate a lot of cells. Uh, you know, lymphocytes and neutrophils and, and macrophages and so on. Mm -hmm. And I had to think about, okay, how, how am I going to represent these things? What, what kind of style am I going to use to, to represent these, uh, these different cell types? So looking at, at a lot of references for other books, you know, where people had illustrated a lot of these different immune cells, what, what many artists did was they, they represented them as what, what I like to call water, water balloons. Basically, just a, a bag of water with a nucleus inside and maybe a handful of organelles scattered throughout. And uh, oftentimes, the cells are depicted using the color blue because we associate blue with, with the color of water, you know, looking at the ocean uh, or, or even looking at ice. Sometimes it has kind of a bluish tint to it. So I created all of these different cell types in different shades of blue. Uh, the, the nuclei were generally, you know, much, much darker blue or, or even purple and um, distinguished the different cell types from one another, mostly by the, the shape of their nuclei. So I used this, this water balloon style for a couple of editions of basic pathology, a couple of editions for the, for the big Robbins book. And then I remember having a meeting with all of the editors out in Chicago, sat down at this meeting and, and we were going to spend some time talking about the artwork for the book and, and, you know, the future of, of the, the artwork for, for the books. 
And the first thing that that they asked, I think I think it was Dr. Kumar said, "Why blue?" And I went through the whole explanation about water balloons and you know making them look like bags of water. And he said, "You know, of of all of the colors that I would have chosen for all these cells, I probably would not have picked blue." It's like, okay, <laughs> there's a big wow. change. Yeah. Um, so what we decided was it made a whole lot more sense. And you know, as soon as they explained this to me, it made perfect sense. But when a pathologist looks under the microscope at a bunch of these cells, they're typically stained with H and E staining. And so the cytoplasm is typically light pink and the nuclei are dark purple. Mm-hmm. And so what we agreed to was, okay, let's, let's emulate the appearance of an H and E staining of, of these cells. So all of those blue cells, all those blue water balloons changed to, you know, having a, a light pink cytoplasm and then, um, you know, the dark purple nuclei, uh, but they're still distinguished from one another, primarily just based on their morphology. Um, you know, like the, the typical multi-lobe nucleus that you see in a, in a neutrophil. And that continued for a couple of editions of the book. And finally, we had another meeting and they said, you know, we're, we're getting some feedback from our students that they're having trouble distinguishing the different types of immune cells because they're all colored the same. So we had another radical change that that really affected many, many illustrations in the books where we went to more of a color coding system. So neutrophils were still colored pink with purple nuclei, but T cells were a different color and macrophages were yet another color and natural killer cells yet a a different color. So we came up with a color coding system to distinguish the the different cell types from one another. So if, if you look at the sixth and seventh editions of these books, and then the eighth and ninth, and most recently, the tenth edition. There's this obvious evolution in, in the, something as, as simple as just the colors of of the different cell types. Okay, I, I'm gonna have to pull out my my Robbins book at, and and take a look at this and see if I can see, see if I can see what you're talking about. That sounds interesting. So, what are some of the other textbooks that you some of the other medical textbooks that you've illustrated? In, in the early days when I was still working in ink, I think I mentioned uh, Dorland's Illustrated Medical Dictionary and, yeah. and surgical atlases like Campbell's Orthopedics. But um, after I started doing everything digitally, and especially you know after I left Design Point and went out on my own, you know the, the Robbins books were were the big ones, and that kind of got my name out there. And uh, I think other authors started seeking me out, and the, the publisher knew that they could rely on me to get things done on time and, and do a good job. So one of the more recent projects that I've done is uh, created all new artwork for Guyton and Hall's textbook of medical physiology, which is a, a book that some of your listeners might be familiar with. So mm-hmm. uh, th- this was a, a huge task because the book had already existed in 12 editions before I got involved in it, But the artwork had been done by a variety of different illustrators over the course of those 12 editions. And so by by the 12th edition, the artwork is really kind of a hodgepodge of of different styles and slightly different color schemes. So they wanted to bring in one artist to completely redo all of the artwork. And and we're talking, I don't know, three or four hundred illustrations, redo them all with a a similar style and a similar color palette. So so I did that for the, the 13th edition and then more recently did the 14th edition. Of, of Guyton as well. The the other work that I've done that, that some of your listeners may be familiar with is um, a part of a, a 
team of illustrators who continue the work of, of Dr. Frank Netter. For your listeners who, who don't know a lot about him, he was originally an artist, actually, and then went to medical school and got his medical degree, and then found that he actually could earn a better living as a medical illustrator than he could as a surgeon. At least, you know, this is at the height of the Great Depression when he when he uh, tried to open a surgical practice. So mm. he ended up with having a long relationship with the Seba Pharmaceutical Company, and then Seba eventually became Novartis. And then the whole collection of Netter artwork was then sold to a company called Icon Learning Systems. I think this was in about 97 or 98. And, and that's, that's when I first got involved with them. Since then, uh, Elsevier has acquired Icon Learning Systems as well. So now Elsevier owns the whole Netter collection along with everything else. In, in 2001, Icon Learning Systems released Netter's Atlas of Human Physiology. So this was a, a, a totally new Netter book. Now, of course, Dr. Netter had, had passed away in 1991, so he wasn't contributing new artwork. But we had a, a team of artists who were adding to and modifying Dr. Netter's work. So some other books that I've done for the Netter series, uh, Netter's Illustrated Pharmacology, Netter's Essential Histology, uh, some of the clinical books. Um, Netter has a cardiology book, pediatrics, neurology, orthopedics. And I've contributed to all of those. Probably the, the biggest contribution that I've made was Netter's Atlas of Neuroscience, uh, which just recently came out in its fourth edition. So okay. I've been very, very involved in, in four editions of, of Netter's Neuroscience. The work that Dr. Netter, that, I, that I've seen, like, uh, you know, uh, the Anatomy Atlas, for example, he has a very distinctive style. Was it difficult to sort of adapt your style to his? Yeah, it's a, an interesting story about that. Um, you're, you're right. He has a very distinctive style, um, mm -hmm. what I would call very painterly, um, especially yeah. if you ever have an opportunity to see the original artwork up close. It's amazing how he would just put the paint on on the on the canvas or on, on the illustration board that he was working on. He put it on really, really thick and, and lots of very noticeable brushstrokes. I actually had a, an opportunity to give a presentation to the Association of Medical Illustrators back in, I think it was 2001 or 2002, shortly after the physiology book came out, which was the, the first you know, really new book uh, under the Netter name. And I, I remember I put a slide in, in my PowerPoint presentation where I had a one of Van Gogh's paintings. To, to kind of represent the Netter style, you know, with the very evident brushstrokes. And right next to that, I put a picture of Charlie Brown from Charles Schultz, you know, just okay. flat colors, you know, for Charlie Brown's head and, and just, you know, a, a black outline. And, you know, I, I wasn't making fun of my own work, but I, I wanted to make the point that, that my style is, is more schematic. It, it's certainly not as, as painterly as Netter's style. And I, I remember when I was first approached by someone from Icon Learning Systems about being a contributor to the Netter collection, they wanted me to send them some samples of artwork. And for a, a brief minute, I thought to myself, well, maybe what I should do is go into Photoshop and try to teach myself how to paint like Netter. And maybe that, maybe I should put together a bunch of samples like that and send that in. But then I, I realized that, that that would just be too much of a, of a challenge. 
that it would be very, very difficult to try to emulate Netter's style. And so instead, what I did is I sent them a whole bunch of the work that I had done in Adobe Illustrator, a bunch of the digital work, which which tends to have a, a more of a schematic quality to it. And it turns out that was a good choice because that's really what they were looking for. They were actually looking to update the appearance of a lot of the artwork in Netter's books. Um, Netter's artwork, especially if you look at his paintings of people, ha- has a little bit of a dated style. You know, the people really look like they're from the 1940s. Mm, and so yeah. they, they actually wanted artwork with a little bit of a different style that, that would make the new books appear a little bit more contemporary. So we, even though side by side, the art has a very different style, there are a couple things I found that that help my work harmonize a little better with the Netter work so they don't look like such a dramatic contrast when they're sitting side by side. Uh, probably the, the 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 most important thing is that I've tried to match his color palette. So I, I try to match the, the the reds and the blues and the yellows and things in his work so that, that my artwork has the, the same palette of colors that you'd find in, in the Netter work. And, and that really helps them look a little bit more natural sitting side by side. I, I think the, the other thing too, which, which may not be real evident when you first look at the artwork, but uh, I, I follow his, his philosophy about, you know, his, his approach to medical illustration. If I can share a, a quote from him, yeah. um, he, he said, clarification of the subject is the aim and goal of illustration. No matter how beautifully painted, how delicately and subtly rendered a subject may be, it is of little value as a medical illustration if it does not serve to make clear some medical point. So the the story is the most important thing that you're trying to tell. The the way it's it's rendered and, and how beautifully rendered and how beautifully painted it is, that's that's secondary. The most important thing is is effectively communicating and, and telling your story. I can understand that. That makes a lot of sense. Last thing I wanted to talk about as far as like, what are your thoughts on the future of medical illustration, particularly where, when it comes to digital illustration and kind of what, like how that's going to evolve in, you know, you, you mentioned a little about 3d already, but what do you think the future of medical illustration is going to look like? It's, it's a good question. I mean, first of all, let me say that I, I feel very lucky, not only that, there was a medical illustration program in my backyard when I decided to uh, uh, change careers, but but also I, I entered the field at a good time. It was right on the cusp of that transition from traditional drawing tools like like watercolor and pen and ink to to working digitally. So I was very fortunate to go through RIT's program at a time when they were teaching all these these digital tools. And you know, ever since I did that that book for Dr. Damanov, and ever since I started working on the Robbins books. My work has been 100% digital. I, I haven't looked back and, and gone back to doing any kind of uh, traditional artwork. And, it, and at this point, essentially every practicing medical illustrator that I know is, is working entirely uh, in digital media. You know, so, some, some future things. For, for decades, I've, had, I've heard people predicting the, the demise of the traditional printed textbook. And, you know, in, in spite of these dire predictions, um, printed textbooks are, are still around. And, you know, maybe the writing is on the wall now. Maybe the printed textbook is, is finally going to die out. But 
in, in talking with some people, uh, I know a lot of people who still like the idea of actually holding a, a physical book in their hands as opposed to just having, you know, something on their computer, so some sort of ebook. Mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe with the younger generation coming up now who have had iPhones in their hands since they were toddlers, maybe they are willing to, to you know, to dispense with the traditional printed textbook and finally move into a, a world where, where everything is, is delivered digitally. So it, it remains to be seen what's going to happen with, um, you know, the future of, of printed textbooks and whether they're going to convert to a completely digital format or not. I know a, a lot of the the books that are coming out now, whether they're eBooks or, or even the, the, the traditional printed textbooks that you buy, they'll, they'll have those little scratch off codes inside the front cover and you can access additional content online. Oh and yeah. So I, I know there's a lot of pressure from, from students and from, from professors to have more of that online content. It, it's what we call rich content. So incorporating more animation and more interactivity into eBooks or into these these online things that you can access with with the little code from your from your book. Part of the problem with that sort of rich content is that it's just really expensive to produce. You know, it's much more expensive to produce an animation than it is to produce some static illustrations. And so, I, I suspect that's one of the reasons that we see a big increase in the price of textbooks is because there's this push to develop all of this additional content to uh you know this ancillary content that comes with with every book so it, it'll it'll be interesting to see you know like i say what what happens to printed textbooks in the future uh, how much more of this kind of rich content this animation interactivity we see with with online textbooks and ebooks as you already mentioned you know there's been a big push to move into the realm of, of 3d computer modeling and, and 3d animation so that's mm-hmm. that's huge um you know fortunately we we have a couple faculty here at rit who teach courses for us in, in 3D modeling and, and 3D animation. So our students are all trained in, in those areas. We're also seeing a lot of growth in the areas of virtual reality, augmented reality, mixed reality, extended reality. There's you know VR, AR, MR, XR, all these little acronyms as, as um, powerful new educational tools where you can put on an Oculus headset and, and be completely immersed in anatomy or, or immersed inside a cell and, uh, you know, viewing cellular processes and physiological processes. You know, I, I think there's, there's a huge future in that, although that's also very expensive to, to develop. Yeah. Uh, something else that, that we're teaching here at RIT and, and that's becoming very important in the field is the development of what are called serious games using software like like unity and unreal these these are what are called uh, game engines they're sort of a game development environment using these tools to create games that have more of an educational focus you know to to teach anatomy or or physiology or or pathology Uh, so that's that's something else that that i see happening in in the profession right now and, and i expect that to continue in the future Okay, that sounds like the future is going to be pretty exciting. Yeah, I, I, I think so. I, I think uh, it'll be exciting, but but also interesting to see how many of these new technologies really take hold. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, well, this this has been really interesting conversation. I really appreciate uh, you know learning more about you and about your career and 
you know, the field of medical illustration. So Jim Perkins, thank you very much. Thank you, Dennis. Uh, it, it was an honor to uh, be interviewed by you and uh, I appreciate it. Great big thanks to Jim Perkins. Here's a trailer from another episode that I think you'll enjoy. And then I'll be back with some final comments on this episode. If someone were interested in this career, uh, what would be your advice for them? I don't know how it works with people just getting into to train on the job. I would probably say that uh, qualification is, is essential. So research universities um, or colleges, um, I would say you need to have some good artistic ability and will likely need to show a portfolio uh, at work when you're applying. And uh, um, you really need to have a basic knowledge of anatomy and the terminology, although you will be taught. And don't expect to fall straight into the perfect career. Um, You might need to do some intern, voluntary unpaid work uh, to build up a portfolio, a casework, um, because when you apply to some, uh, say, for example, Interpol or the police or something, they would maybe want to see evidence of some sort of casework that you'd been involved in. To hear more from Karen Fleming and her career as a forensic artist, check out episode 54. I've said before how much I like these combination careers where it's, you know, a combination of two different fields put together to create an entirely new field. And this is one of those where it's a combination of art and biological sciences to create the medical illustrator. And we've talked extensively in past episodes about the connection between pathology and art. So this one is a really good example of that connection. And I like how Jim mentioned the idea of lifelong learning. I mean, it's true in medical illustration. It's also true in pathology and lab medicine. So there's another connection there as well. I'll have links in the show notes to everything we talked about today. Don't forget, you can follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at People of Path, or you can connect with me on LinkedIn. Thank you for continuing to share the show with others. And together, let's inspire the next generation of pathologists and laboratory professionals. This show is a member of Health Podcast Network, which connects listeners with conversations and stories about health, care, and well-being. And you can find a link in the show notes to Health Podcast Network if you'd like to check out some of their other interesting podcasts. Thank you very much for listening, and happy Lab Week to all my listeners in the U.S., and I will talk to you next time on the People of Pathology podcast.